So the Olivet Discourse, Matthew chapter 24, is what most people run to. Because that has all the fun stuff in it. The end times stuff and the signs of the end of the age and wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and famines. And that's where we read what what it's going to be like towards the end times. And we all can agree that, that we're there. We're right at the door. Matthew chapter 25 isn't spoken of much in the Olivet Discourse. People tend to gloss over that. But in chapter 24, verse 44, it says, Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. So I want to focus on that little word before we get into 25, that little word ready. Be ready. What does be ready look like in returning to the Lord? I mean, if you're getting ready to go to work, you'd have maybe your lunch or whatever you wear to work, a suit or work clothes, whatever, you'd dress for work. That looks different than if you're getting ready to go on vacation. You got bags packed, you got all your reservations all set out, um, figure out what, what, what time you have to be at the airport for a flight out or whatever it is. That looks completely different than going to work. That looks different than going to the grocery store. When you have your list all laid out and you got your money and you're making sure you got everything, everything on your list that you need and you go grocery shopping. What does get ready for Jesus' coming look like? How, how is that supposed to work? How are we supposed to look? Work, look with that, and that's what we're going. That's what chapters, chapter twenty-five lays out. Chapter twenty-five has three different parables, and like a trilogy, they get a little deeper every time. They're all saying the same thing. They're all saying the same thing. Like a trilogy, you get the initial little first. In this case, parable. If you have a movie trilogy, the first one gives you a little bit of information, and every every movie gets a little deeper every time. This is laid out the same way. So we'll begin in Matthew 25, verse 1. It says, Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to. So this is a parable. This isn't about virgins and lampstands. It's, it's a parable. So it... it, it when Jesus says the kingdom of heaven will be likened to, he's, he's painting a picture of what we should look like if we want to be a part of the kingdom of heaven. Now, the very simple way to, to test ourselves and our hearts is, do we look like the picture? If we do, awesome. If we don't, time to adjust our life a little bit. Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to Ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. Boy, doesn't that sound like the church? <laughs> we're sleeping, most of us. So these virgins 
represent the church. That's, that's pretty clear. It's also pretty clear about the cut. You get a 50-50 cut. Five are wise, five are foolish. That might suggest that half the church isn't as ready as they think they are. But on the outside, all of these ten virgins all looked the same. They had lampstands, and they had, they had their, the same dressings. They had the same clothes on. They all looked the same. Everybody that piles into a church on Sunday kind of all looks the same. We have basically the same kind of clothes on. We have Some of us have our Bibles, some don't, but everybody calls into church, and you can't on the outside figure out which people are saved and which people are just playing. There's a lot of people playing church. There's a lot of people that think they, they go to church, and that's all there is to be a Christian. Are you a Christian? Yeah, I go to church. That's not what I asked you. Because you can go to church for 30 years and not really surrender your life to Jesus Christ. You walk out of church and you blend in with everybody else. Your life look, doesn't look any different than anybody else. You got to make sure, and that's what this is. This first, this first one is about. So in this parable, the lampstands represent the heart, and the oil represents the Holy Spirit. That's what we're reading here. Verse 6, and at midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. So in, the, in a Jewish courtship, in a Jewish marriage, you have the engagement, and the engagement can happen when the, they're just boys and girls. The fathers make an arrangement that when they're old enough, my son's going to marry your daughter, and they have, a, have an arrangement made. Wouldn't that be fun? You don't get to choose. The parents get to choose who you're going to be married to. The betrothal period, they actually come together, and there's a short ceremony. And that's when rings are exchanged. And if you remember the Christmas story, it says Joseph was betrothed to Mary. So they were in that betrothal. They had exchanged the rings, and they were, for all intents and purposes, at that point, you needed an official divorce to end things. And then a year, a year ish, a year later ish or so, um, they didn't know when the bridegroom was coming, but they knew it was close. Just like we know it's close when our bridegroom's coming, he's coming close. At that at that point, they they're they're ready for it. They're getting prepared for the bridegroom to come in, and that's when they come in, have a, a wedding feast for about seven days, and that's when Jesus changes the water into wine because they didn't have enough wine. <laughs> Um, would have been a very big embarrassment for you to run out of wine during that feast, um, which is why that was such a big deal. But so we're at the third the third phase of this. They're they're coming in. The bridegroom's coming, just like we're waiting for our bridegroom to come. At midnight, a cry was heard: "Behold, the bridegroom is coming! Go out to meet him." Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you, 
but go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And they went to, to buy the bride, they went to buy, and the bridegroom came, and those who were ready, there's that word, went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. So this is a pretty simple, pretty simple explanation. You cannot give the Holy Spirit to anybody else. All you should say to my youth group kids, if 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 we're both extremely thirsty, me taking a drink of water and quenching my thirst does nothing for you. You have to have your own drink of water to quench your own thirst. Likewise, you have to have your own relationship with Jesus. You have to have the relationship in your heart for yourself. I can't give it to you. Nobody can give it to you. You can't give it, give it to anybody else. They have to have it for themselves, which is why it's really important to explain that to children while they're young. That's not something you drop on them when they're 22. When they're younger, you explain to them, look, just because I have a relationship with Jesus and I take you to church every week, makes it does nothing for your salvation other than maybe build a foundation for it. But you have to receive Christ for yourself. You have to have your own walk. You have to have your own relationship or you're not going to go to heaven. It's just that simple. There's no grandchildren in heaven. You're either a child of God or you're not. You can't ride anybody's coattails into heaven. You've got to have your own relationship. And that's pretty much all this first parable is about. You either have oil in your lampstand or you don't. You either have the Holy Spirit in your heart or you don't. And just like back in Noah's day, God shut the door, he shuts the door here too. Afterward, verse 11, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. One of the scariest lines in all of God's word. I don't know you. That's not something anybody wants to hear. Matthew, Matthew 7, 21 through 23 kind of lays out the same thing. Jesus said, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, have we not? Have we not driven out demons? Have we not healed people? I don't know about you. I've not ever driven out a demon. Have you? I've never actually put my hands on somebody and healed them. Have you? There's some people doing some pretty wild things out there. Weren't we good people? Didn't we go to church? Didn't I, didn't I give money to Compassion International? Wasn't, wasn't, wasn't I a good person? And he says, I'll tell them plainly, I never knew you. You have to have the relationship. You have to have the oil in your lampstand. That's the first parable. That's the first be ready. Repent and surrender your lives to Christ. That's, that's the first parable. Now we go to the second one. Parable of the talents. For the kingdom of heaven is like, there it is again, a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. Now, I kind of like the NIV's version of this a little better because it says he entrusted his property to them. 
He entrusted his property to them. What property does God have that he entrusts to us? What goods does he, did he, does he deliver to us? We're his servants. That's clear in, in there. The property that he has is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's his property. Jesus bled and died for that property. You know, it says, Paul says in a couple of, couple of uh, it says it in uh, 1 Thessalonians, and he says it in Galatians, he says that um, the, the gospel has been entrusted to me. If you're sitting here tonight and you can say, I am a Christian, I'm a, fam- I'm a member of the family of God, I'm a saint, then the gospel has been entrusted to you too. What are you doing with that? Because it's clear here what is expected of us who have that property, who's been entrusted with that. And whether you like it or not, that's what you signed up for. That's why Jesus says count the cost. Count the cost of being a disciple. Count the cost of not, because both are going to cost you. Obviously, if you're not, if you reject it, that cost is going to be an eternity in hell. Pretty heavy cost. But down here, if you're living the way God's word tells us to, and we're actually doing something with this gospel that we've been entrusted with, the cost is going to be persecution. Maybe some family members not wanting to talk to you anymore because you're pushing it too much. Maybe some friends not inviting you to the birthday parties anymore because they just don't want you around. Thankfully, we're not like other countries where they don't want to kill you. Imagine your father and mother wanting to kill you. Wouldn't that make you feel real good? That's how it is in Muslim countries. Jewish countries, you're blackballed. They disown you. Um, Over here, we have massive persecution. People call you names and they don't want to be with you anymore. But you're still going to get persecuted. So he delivered your goods to them. And to one, verse 15, he gave five talents. To another, two. And to another, one. To each according to his own ability. And immediately he went on a journey. Now, right away, our human natures go, well, that's not really fair. One guy got five, one guy got one. But it's according to their ability. Let's face it, we, we all have different abilities. We just do. Some of us have bigger platforms in life. We, we can interact and speak with more people. Um, Billy Graham clearly got five talents. <laughs> You know, some of us smaller preachers around town, maybe two. You know, but even even with the one, you can still talk one-on-one with people, invite people to coffee, do something to plant seeds in people's lives. We all can do something for the kingdom of God. And that's the point. And immediately he went on a journey. So verse 16, then... He who had received the five talents went out and traded with them and made 
another five talents. And likewise, he who had received two gained two more. But he who had received one went and dug dug in a hole, dug in the ground and hid his lord's money. After a long time, the lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. So it's pretty clear, at least I mean to me, the two that were faithful were the two that had oil in their lampstands. The one that was not was the foolish virgin that didn't have any oil in their lampstand. He didn't have the Holy Spirit in his heart. He wasn't prepared in the in the and this is this is going to play out. So if you want to be ready, you first have to have oil in your lampstand. And then in the second parable, he gives you an idea of what that's supposed to look like. What does it look like to have oil in your lampstand? And he lays it out with this parable. Verse 20. So he who had received five talents came and brought five other talents, saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I have gained five more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful with over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. If you take note of that, if you can be faithful with the little bit that God gives you down here, you're going to reward, be rewarded with a lot more up there. I think that's pretty encouraging. We all, we all like to get the advancement in life. <laughs> all like to get the pay raise. <laughs> you know, and it says in um, the very last phrase of, First uh, Corinthians chapter 15, um, nothing that you do for the Lord Jesus Christ is in vain. Nothing you do is in vain. Down here, you can work your rear end off and not get the raise. You can, you can study real hard and still not get, you don't get the job. There's, you know, life isn't really fair down here all the time. It's perfectly fair. In God's kingdom. He's keeping the perfect ledger. He knows exactly what you're doing for his kingdom. He also knows our hearts. He knows if we're doing it for his kingdom or we're, we're doing it to for other reasons. Let's face it. We can all do things for other reasons. And if you're doing things to receive thanks from people, Jesus is pretty clear about that. You've already sought your thanksgiving here. Don't expect any rewards there. So we have to be careful about having the attitude well, that person never even thanked me for that. Were you looking to be thanked? Or were you just doing it of the goodness of your heart because you're doing it for Jesus? Because if you're looking for thanks down here, you're not going to get any thanks up there. That's crystal clear. Read um, the, right after the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5 and 6. Jesus lays that out. So our motives need to be pure too. He also, who had received the two talents, came and said, Lord, you delivered to me two talents. Look, I have gained two more talents besides them. 
His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter in the joy of your Lord. Very encouraging. It doesn't. You don't have to look at other people and be jealous at what they're doing or what they're, they have or what God has told them to do. All you have to do is be faithful to what God has told you to do. Because it's pretty clear here that both people received the same exact reward. The person with five talents didn't get more rewards than the person with two. All you have to do is do what you're supposed to do. Man, all too often we get jealous of each other, look around, go, why can't we have, why can't I do what he's doing? Why can't I do what they're doing? Look, you know what, if you're, if you're called to sweep the floors and empty the trash in church, I can guarantee you you're going to get just the same reward as the person standing up here delivering a message. If you're faithful at it, if you're doing it with the right attitude. But they were, they were working at it. They were taking, look, everybody has different talents, talents and abilities. Some people have the ability to stand up and preach in front of people. Some don't. Some people feel very comfortable going to a street corner and blasting it out to people. I don't. <laughs> some, most people don't, but some people do. That's how Charles Spurgeon started. Billy Graham started that way. Somebody recognized them and said, hey, Charles Spurgeon was right across the street from the Park Street Church at 19 years old, and they're hunting for a pastor. They can't find one. All of a sudden, they look over, and here's this, here's this guy preaching in the park. He's got more of a crowd around him than they did at church. What do you think they did? They went over and asked him if he'd be their pastor at 19 years old with no college education. How many churches would, would wipe him off the table as being a pastor because they don't have a college degree? Little side note, the Bible does not say you need a degree from academia in order to be a pastor. That's what's got the church in trouble in this country, in my opinion. Because you got people, people that are educated, but they're not called. So both of those, both of those people with the oil in their lampstand went out and used the talents, their money, their popularity. Everything that they have at their disposal, and they laid it at Jesus' feet. You do with it what you want. That's the definition of being meek. That's what Jesus did with his heavenly father. Jesus had all the power in the world to do what he wanted down here. He healed people with it. He could have, he could have taken out the whole Roman army. What he did was he laid that power at the feet of his heavenly father and said, I'll do what you want me to do. And that's what being meek, meek is not weak. Meek is taking the powers that you have, the money that you have, the influence that you have in this world, and you're going to use those things for God's glory. And you're going to use them any way he tells you to use them. That's what these first two people were doing. And they both doubled what the Lord gave them originally. Now we, get to the, now we get to the man who did not have any oil in his lampstand. Then he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. Now right there, 
right there you can tell that this man did not have a relationship with his with, with the Savior. He totally doesn't know his character. Totally maligning the character of the king because he doesn't have that relationship to know him. Verse 25, and I was afraid. Did you catch that? I was afraid. How many people are not going to go to heaven because of fear? Do you know um, Revelation? I don't have it marked. Maybe I can find it for you real quick here. In Revelation, I think it's chapter 2. Right there. Revelation, you can turn there if you want. Revelation 21, verse 8. Revelation 21, verse 8. I always think this is interesting. Another list of people, and there's many lists in the Bible of people that will not see the kingdom of heaven. And this is one of the last lists we see of people that aren't, aren't going to make the cut. People are, that aren't not going to, you're not going to see these people in heaven. So verse 8 said, but the cowardly. Did you see that? First one out of the gate. The cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. The cowardly. If you're going to live your life in fear, if you're going to allow fear, because we're also told in in Timothy, that the spirit of fear does not come from God. So if it doesn't come from God, it can only come from one other source, and that would be Satan. So if we're going to cause fear to keep us from sharing our faith with people, if we're going to let fear keep us from sharing our testimony with others and speaking about Jesus and getting people to understand the gospel, which is everybody's responsibility, if we're going to allow fear to keep us from doing that, then you're being obedient to the fear, which means you're being obedient to the enemy, which means if you're the cowardly, you're not going to be going to heaven. I didn't say it. The book says it. Look, we are all fearful at some point of something that we overcame. First probably time might have been riding a bike. First time you had a bike, you're like, oh, you feel like fair about Did you overcome that? Probably if you want to ride around with all your friends, you overcame that fear. Next time, maybe driving a car. First time behind the wheel is kind of terrifying. But we overcame that because we realized if we weren't going to get along in life unless we knew how to drive a car. We all had to come overcome fears of some sort. This is the most important fear to overcome. And I understand if people are shy, it's even more of a fear. Okay, so write cards out to people. <laughs> write, write, figure out a list of people that you know and get their address and write the gospel down on a card and send it along. You don't have to, you know, there's other ways around things to do. If you're on Facebook, 
private message people. There's ways you, in this day and age, there's ways you can witness to people without even having to open your mouth. But are you doing that? Are we doing that? Because if we're allowing fear to sabotage that, you might only have, you might not have much oil in your lampstand. That's all I'm saying to you. You got to really work that out because it's pretty clear that the guy that was unfaithful with his one talent was afraid. And we read back here the cowardly will not see heaven. That hits a nerve with a lot of people. But you know, it's interesting. In the American Christian church, 5% of the American church actually tithes. 5%. Pretty pathetic, isn't it? 5%. 95% of the of people who say they're Christians in this country don't trust God with 10 cents out of a dollar. The other statistic is that of all people in the American church, only 5% have ever led someone to Christ. 5%. If leading someone to Christ is one of the criteria, a lot of people are in trouble. Now, you can plant some seeds and not necessarily lead someone to Christ. So, you know, you can kind of skirt around that one a little. But the, the point is, how many people are actually every day pursuing people to talk to? Are you just waiting for them to come up and ask you, hey, can you explain the gospel to me? Oh, yeah, I'd be happy to. That doesn't happen. You have to have the conversation. You have to start the conversation. You may have heard this story. If you did, forgive me. But the story of the, a little old man in Melbourne, Australia. There's a place in Melbourne where it's a big block, walk around the block, and there's a little alleyway that cuts through, and you get a shortcut, avoiding all that. And there's a little old, this these three guys were walking through the alleyway, and this little old man stopped them, and he asked them one question. If you were to die, to die today, are you 100% sure you'd go to heaven? And that was it. Walked away. Well, the one man, that haunted him and haunted him and haunted him, and he did some research, started picking up the Bible, and he ended up getting saved, went to seminary. Now he's a pastor. And now he's preaching at a pastor's conference, and he tells his testimony. And that little old man's part of his testimony. And after he gets done telling his testimony, and after he said his amen and everybody was, he had four or five other pastors came up and said, we met the same little old man. It was that same little old man where I started my faith journey. Because it got me thinking about it. So they thought, wow, I wonder how many people, if there's five of us right in this room, how many people have come to Christ because of that little old man and that question? So he went, they figured 
this guy needs to know the kind of fruit he's producing for the kingdom. So they, a couple of them decided to buy the ticket, go over the, to Melbourne. They walked down the alley, and they found one little door that looked like it may have been an apartment. And they knocked on the door, and a little older now, but he opens the door. And they explained who, who they were, and he let them in. And he, they were saying, look, there's been, there was five guys in a pastor's conference, and we all are Christians because you were bold enough to ask us that question. And the man broke down in tears. He goes, you know, when I, when I got saved, I promised God that I would confront 10 people a day. I'm not a theologian. I read my Bible, but I, I'm just, I don't know enough about it. I figured I can do one thing, and that's get people to think about where they're going to spend eternity. And that's how I do it. You don't need to be a theologian. All you have to do is be willing. Be willing to open your mouth and say something. Figure out what, what it is that you can say that you feel comfortable with. But it's really important that we do that. Really important that we have something. I ho hope all of you have a testimony that you've worked out. Because, you know, Peter tells us to be prepared to give an account of the faith that we have. Have we done that? Do you have a testimony that you can rattle off with somebody for a couple, two or three minutes? Why do you go to church? What's the big deal? Why do you spend? Why do you waste your time going to church? Hope you have something to say, and I hope it's powerful. Piece of scripture in there, whatever piece of scripture makes you tick. But what does Jesus do for you? What has He done for you? How did you get saved? Why do you stick with it? I mean, we have to have an answer for that, and it needs to be an answer that's going to hit them right between the eyes. Can't just be, well, you know, you know, I just, I kind of believe, and you know, you can't be wishy-washy about it. You either believe it or you don't. But don't be a coward with it. Don't don't let fear drive you. Don't let fear drive you. Because you could be in some trouble if you, if you continue on that course. So I was afraid, verse 25, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, there is, there you have what is yours. But his Lord answered and said to him, You wicked and lazy servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. So you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers, and at my coming I would have received back my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he who has, and he will have an abundance. But from him who does not have, even what, what he has will be taken away. And cast the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Clearly that last person is not saved. He's tossed into hell, and he will burn with everybody else. A, a clear picture of oil in the lampstand, no oil in your lampstand. If you have oil in your lampstand, you're going to want to be obedient to God. You're going to want to act differently in the world. You're going to want to be prepared to give your testimony. You're going to want to search people out and see who might need a prayer today, who, who, who needs some hope out there. 
If someone calls you, I need some prayers, whatever, fine, great. Let's pray together. And if they're not saved, let's let's talk about it a little bit. You know, try to reel them in a little bit. So pretty clear about those two, those two parables. If you have one in your lampstand, then you're going to be out taking your talents and abilities, and you're going to be out there trying to increase the kingdom of God. Pull people into the kingdom of God with you as you travel through this life, either by planting a seed or watering a seed. And it's a time, it's interesting, it's a time you don't know if you're planting a seed in that person's heart or you're watering a seed that somebody else already planted. You don't know that. But if, and see, I always say this, look, if more people, more Christian people were willing to speak out for Jesus, then the few of us that are doing so wouldn't look, look so weird. <laughs> we wouldn't look like Jesus freaks. If everybody was doing it, wouldn't do you think that'd be powerful? If they heard this coming from everybody who claimed to follow Christ, everybody was telling people. Everybody was planting or watering seeds. Everywhere you turned, there'd be somebody talking to Jesus with you. That doesn't happen. You know it as well as I do. It just it doesn't happen. And I guess the big question is, why doesn't it happen? If you really love your Savior, if you're really thankful for what he's done for you, I don't know, isn't that something you just want to do? I mean, I love my wife. I love doing things for her. You know, if you, if you really love somebody, you want to do things for them. Well, nobody's done any more for us than Jesus Christ. It's something we should want to do if we have the oil in our lampstands. Then you have the last one, verse, starting at verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another, as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. You can also this is also the parable of the wheat and the tares that we all know very well. At the end of the end of the age, you pull up the wheat, pull up the tares, and the reason that that's it's wheat and tares, and the reason they say let them let them all grow together, and at the end we will we will separate them because wheat and tares. When they're very young, they both look the same. You can't tell one from another. It's only when they, they grow to maturity that the wheat looks like wheat and the tares look like the weed. You can, you can see them perfectly, which is why in that parable they're told, wait till the end and then they'll pick them up. But this, it's the same concept that he's using here, sheep and the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. I love that. From the foundation of the world. When God was, was designing the world, the place that we were going to go was ready to go. 
Isn't that awesome? You know, I'm reminded, my father-in-law, who's been gone from us for 20 years now or so, 23 years to be exact, um, he bought the piece of, of property that we're living on in 1970, I believe. In 1970, I was eight years old. Didn't even know what Maine was back then. Could have cared less. All I cared about was having a wiffle ball and a wiffle ball bat and some friends to play with. That's all I cared about. And yet, we're living on that piece of land. And it's just, it always blesses me to think that God was already preparing for me a place to live on this, on this earth. And I didn't even know it. Think of what he has prepared for us up there. And we don't know it. It's impossible to know what it's going to be like until you're there. But that's what he—that's what's prepared for us. Come inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Verse 35. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? Look, these people who he's now inviting into his kingdom because they did these wonderful things. They didn't even know they were doing them for the Lord. They were just out of the goodness of their heart, because they have oil in their lampstands, had the heart and the compassion to help people. That's it. And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. So when you're helping somebody, you're helping the Lord. That's it. When we help each other, we're helping the Lord. Because let's face it, if everybody has oil in their lampstands, brothers and sisters, we're helping the Lord. If we help people that we don't know if they're saved or not, or maybe they're not saved, you might be, you still might be helping a future brother. Because <laughs> that very act of love that you're giving to, to them might be the one thing that turns their life around. What's interesting is these people were not dictating God's love, they were demonstrating God's love. We have to demonstrate God's love, not dictate it. Don't we love to dictate? You need to do this. You need to do that. If you're a Christian, you should be doing this. And that's important to, to keep people accountable. Yes, it is. But demonstrating God's love is way more powerful. And in this instance, exactly what the king wants. He wants us to demonstrate God's love. He wants us to be his hands, his feet, his mouth, 
He wants us to represent him. That is what being Christ-like means. That's what a Christian means. You're Christ-like. If you're Christ-like, this is going to be your life. So you have oil in your lampstand. If you have five talents and you five talents, you make five more, or two and you make two more. Again, how do you do that? Well, he takes you to this parable, and you see how to do it. By loving people. By feeding people. By getting them a drink when they need one. By visiting them in the hospital or nursing homes. I said this, I said this before. You know, there's an 8 to 1 ratio in most towns, churches to nursing homes. For every one nursing home, there's eight churches. That's the ratio in this country. And yet, how many people, old Christian saints included, lay in those nursing homes day after week after year and nobody visits them? You don't need a theological degree. You don't need to know your Bible. All you have to do is be willing to take a piece of your time, even just once a week, and go in there and adopt some people as grandparents. And go in and say hi to them and talk to them. Nobody ever does. Listen to their stories. Pray with them. Read the Bible with them. We've done that a couple times at the, at the uh, Patton Pond House. To see people's eyes light up when you play out of your little phone, Amazing Grace. And they can't remember what they had for lunch two hours ago. But their cheeks, cheeks start, their tears start running down their face because they can remember that old hymn. And it brings their faith right back up to the front. And they're like, yeah, I remember this. It's, a, it's beautiful to see. But most people don't never get to see that beauty because they're not willing to take the time. Everybody's too busy. Busy doing what? Running after stuff? The more stuff you have, the more stuff you have to take care of. An hour, an hour a week. You know, if again, eight to one ratio. If every church picked a day, or if every church just took turns going in there, you could have it every every town should be covered. Not one person should be left left by themselves in a nursing home. It's sad. It's very sad that people aren't willing to take the time to do that. These are some of our older saints. These are people that built this country. There was one guy over at Birch Bay that I, I took. We would go over there and visit. We'd walk around the halls every time we'd come, and he told me the same story every time. But it was a fantastic story. He was in World War II. His ship was hit by a torpedo and sunk, and he himself saved 13 men from drowning. And a war hero, Purple Heart. And there he sat by himself, nobody visiting him. Man, is that sad. So, yeah, we'd show up every week. I'd show up and walk him around the block a couple times and listen to the same old story. And I didn't care. Because it was a beautiful story. And he earned the right to tell that story as many times as he wanted to. Uh, the, the richness that we are missing out on by not doing that. 
is sad. It really is. But these people didn't even know what they were doing. They were just doing it because they were doing it. Verse 41. Then he will say, also say to those on his left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer to him and saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, or a stranger or naked, or sick or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will... Answer them, saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it for one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into everlasting eternal life. Pretty clear what get ready looks like. Oil in your lampstand, you're taking the talents and abilities that you have. If you have oil in your lampstand and you're, in, you're increasing God's kingdom and how you do that is by loving people. It's just that clear and just that simple. Loving people. Notice the people that are cast into hell. Nothing said about murders. Nothing said about rapists. Nothing said about, about child abusers. Nothing said about thieves. All people did was live their own lives in a self-centered way, and they didn't care about anybody around them. Hopefully that doesn't match your life, that you're just working on you and providing for you and dealing with you. And it's all about you. Hopefully you're taking heed of this and you're sharing God's love for people because it's clear that that's what Jesus wants from us. That's God's will for our lives. Everybody wants, what's God's will for my life? Well, there it is. Pretty clear. It's God's will. Love other people. Take the time to visit. Take the time to help. Take the time to make a meal for somebody who is having a rough time. Might be an older person in your community who still lives by herself. Take a meal over to her. Sit down and talk to her as you eat. Help her to feel like she's important. You know what? She's important to God. And that's all that should matter. There's always ways we can look to help people and to love people. That should be our MO as Christians. It's clear, according to these three, three parables, it's crystal clear that we need to love people. And if you have the oil in your lampstand, you're going to do that. And if you're serious about taking your talents and abilities and building the kingdom of God, you're going to do that. And how that looks is loving people. It's just really, it's really that simple. It's that simple. So as we, it's funny, a lot of people, I hear a lot of people say, oh, I can't wait for the rapture. I can't wait for the rapture. Well, you better make sure you're ready for the rapture. Because there's a proverb, Proverb 14, 12, 
that says there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. Are you sure you're ready? Better be sure. And this is a good, these three parables are a good way to examine yourselves. 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, examine yourself and make sure you're in the faith. How do you do that? You take parables like this and you prayerfully read through it and you say, Lord, where am I here? Where am I within these three parables? What do I look like? Am I really ready? You prayerfully ask that question and you ponder these three. He'll tell you. He wants that kind of prayer all day long. Another way you can examine yourself is to go into the seven churches in, in, in Revelation. We all fit in there somewhere. Where do you fit? Have you lost your first love? Are you just kind of going through the motions of your Christian faith? Because you know you kind of have to do these things, and it's kind of getting old and stale, and you're not really doing it for the love of the Lord anymore. You lost your first love. That's the first church out of the gate. Where do you fit in there? Prayerfully read that. Again, ask the same question. Lord, where would I fit here? Help, help me, Lord, to understand where I fit. And then help me make the necessary changes to repent and get into a, a better spot, get a better place in my life. Yes, the rapture's coming soon. Yes, we're in the end times. But it's our job to make sure that we're working out our salvation. And the way you do that is by reading these parables, by reading different things that we can examine ourselves and make sure that we're in the faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this word. It's powerful, Lord, very, very powerful. And it's clear, Lord, what you require of us. You require us to have the Holy Spirit in our hearts. And the only way we can do that, Lord, the only way we can do that is to repent and surrender. Repent of our sins, surrender our lives to you completely. And then begin to work using our talents and our abilities that you have given us, work to build your kingdom. And how we do that, Lord, is to just love people. Look for people who need some love. Look for people that need some help and extend that help. That's what you did, Lord, when you were on this planet. Always looking for someone that needed a helping hand. Always looking to heal somebody. Always looking to feed people. Lord, as your saints, as your ministers, we have the same responsibility. I pray, Lord, as we do get ready for your coming, that we would ponder this message tonight and what these three parables tonight and make sure that we know that we're ready. In Jesus' name, amen.